1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Testing one, two, three. We're on. We're here to investigate a patient that killed three innocent teenagers on Halloween in 1978. He was shot by his own psychiatrist and taken into custody that night and has spent the last 40 years in captivity. Hello, Michael. I have something you might like to see. Everyone in my family like turns into a nutcase this time of year. I mean, your grandmother is Lori Strode. She was almost murdered. Wasn't it her brother who murdered all those babysitters? No, it was not her brother. That's something that people made up. Do you know that I pray every night that he would escape? Who the hell did you do that for? So I can kill him. Bus crashed. Mom, what bus crashed? Michael escaped. Excuse me, somebody's in here. Hello? for this night. He's waited for me. I've waited for him. Get out! Go home! Get inside! You don't believe in the boogeyman? He's here! Michael! You should. Can you close the closet door?
Hello everybody and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spitaro and I am joined today and hopefully for at least several of the next few episodes of this show by my friend Trentus Magnus. Hello, hello, hello. How's it going, Trent? Hey, it's going all right, man. Um, it, uh, one of us finished up work on time today, but the other one, well, less so. <laughs> Got it. Okay. All right. Fair uh, <laughs> so uh, we last year we did the 1978, I believe. Uh, yeah, 1978 version of Halloween. And we've talked over the course of the last year, and we've decided we were going to do the 2018 Halloween, the 2021 Halloween Kills, and if we are able to, the 2022 Halloween Ends. Uh, so today we're, do, we're looking at Halloween 2018, and like I said, hopefully we'll be doing these in s semi-rapid-fire fashion, uh, and quite frankly there is not anybody in the podcasting world that i feel is more equipped to join me on this particular journey so thanks for coming on for it hey i'm, I'm just happy to be here i don't really do a whole lot of pat, uh, podcasting these days as you probably know very well so honestly for me what it comes down to is just a series of guest appearances on is it jaws that's the extent of podcasting i do so always happy to happy to dive in well, and i'm happy to have you so thank you for for coming on um now i had this this for me is a, a tale of two uh two reviews kind of because this is another one of the movies that i watched and thought eh, and then i watched it a second time and said you know what that was a lot better than i thought the first time really yeah huh well see now because that's interesting because the first time i saw Halloween 2018, you know, today's subject matter. Uh, right. The first time I saw that, I thought, you know what, that was really good. I enjoyed it, Had a just had a blast watching it, and it was great. And then I want to say it was maybe three or four months later, I decided, you know, hey, just give it another whirl. And it just did not hold up for me the second time around. I even released an episode of my show about that, Trenus Magnus Punches Reality even released an episode of my show about that saying, you know, guys, am I all alone here? Or does this just not bear up to repeat viewings? And so a listener uh, sent me an email. It's like, I think I know what the issue is. Watch it again. Watch it for a third time. Just whenever you remember to do it and just see if your opinion doesn't, doesn't change again. So I did. And the third time really was the charm. The first time around, I liked it. It was great. You know, tons of fun, but it, it just didn't move me, you know? And then the second time, I, I just wondered, you know, my goodness, like, what was I thinking? You know, this is not the movie I thought it was. And then for some reason, on the third viewing, it's like you're able to put it, or at least I was able to put it into some kind of, like, better context. So was that anything like your experience, or? What? Yeah, I guess what I did was I just skipped over your first impression. I went right to the second and third. <laughs> okay. Because that that you know, if, if you eliminated your first viewing where you walked out thinking that was great, then then I'm I'm right on board with you. Now I didn't hate it the first time I saw it. It's not like I said, oh, this movie sucks, but I thought really I walked away thinking it was unnecessary after the first viewing. 
Um, you know, there was a whole build-up to this. Uh, you know, there were there were a lot of rights issues. Uh, apparently Miramax had the rights and they had to make a sequel within a certain amount of time, which we've heard that story with a lot of different IPs. Uh, and they did not. And then it reverted back to, uh, I'm trying to remember which, uh, Blumhouse Productions, right. uh, who, who made this. And then there was a lot of build up to it that, you know, it was being done with John Carpenter's involvement and that, you know, this was going to be, uh, once again, like quite, kind of what they did in some Terminator movies, they're going to disregard a lot of the sequels. Uh, I'm trying to remember, did they pick this up after the first Halloween or the second? I think it was right after the first one. I think right, this is a yes. direct sequel to the first movie. Right. It basically wash, washes everything else away. So going into this thing, the only thing you need to see is the 1978 original. Then you're set. Yeah, so we're, we're doing this correctly on this show. We're going right from the first one to the second one. Yep, just with exactly uh, right. 40 years in between. <laughs> and, well, uh, I, you know what? The way I and many people, I think, have actually made this joke about the Halloween franchise being kind of like choose your own adventure. You mm-hmm. know, there are so many different alternate timelines and reboots, unboots, retcons, changes. I mean, I, I would imagine that a, a sizable proportion of your audience is they're, they're probably there's got to be some kind of overlap with comic book collectors. And so I think comic book readers are probably uniquely qualified to parse out the Halloween series. But I've wondered, what, how does this movie series come off to the public, you know? <laughs> well, I, I think you might have a similar feel for this as you do for the Terminator movies. Because they also have a similar reboot and let's forget these sequels and go, you know, concentrate on this one. And they've done it a few times. So... You know, I, I think it's a similar thing, and I think the general public, quite frankly, I think they are not geared up for that, and I don't think they appreciate it. But it does also make it more accessible. You know, as, as we just we just said, you know, you can jump into this having only seen one movie, instead of I, I don't even know how many there were before this eleven something like that. Uh, you know, you don't you don't have to go through those, and and you know we, I, I I don't think we'd have find anybody who would disagree that those eleven or so movies have a varying level of quality. Uh, so some of them might be a real slog to get through, uh, and and you could just say you know what the heck with it. If you want to watch all of those, you can. If you don't want to watch all of them, you don't need to watch any of them. You can just watch that very first one, and and you you know everything you need to know to watch this one. And is that the kind of thing that you approve of? You know, throw out the stuff that uh, you don't want, keep the stuff you do want? Or do you think that, you know, what is past is prologue? That really should apply, and we should, even if you don't necessarily like what came before, you really do need to stick to it. Like, just on a personal level, which approach do you prefer? Well, quite frankly, (laughs) I have become less... I, I, I grew up a continuity... You know, I was part of the continuity police... Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really, it really bothered me when they had something that that directly contradicted what, what went before. Uh, but as I get older, I start feeling like, well, I'm happy to have a new adventure in the world that I'm interested in, and rather than have to have all this excess baggage, let's just go with what you know works best. You know, again, I'm going to just, you know, give a correlation to recently, uh, you know, there was the Obi-Wan series and there was a great deal of uh, 
you know, uh, kickback from the the fans saying, well, this isn't consistent with what you know, whatever other thing that that was shown. Whereas when I watched it, I thought I just enjoyed this series for itself, and I was able to get by my continuity police attitude. Uh, and just just enjoy the series, and you know now I'm doing the same with Halloween, and I have, quite frankly, done the same with the Terminator movies, uh, to you know varying extents with the different timelines that have been created over the years. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, it's just that it's one of those things that with all these different changes and whatnot that have happened to the series over time, at this point, Laurie Strode is, she's had quite a few different children. and you know it's just it's one of those things where whenever you make these changes uh, you know to the timeline you're keeping this uh, you know this movie over here in continuity but you're throwing out this other one over there there are times when you get you you get sort of uh, bonuses out of that shall we say and at least for me, one of the big buy-ins on this movie for me is the fact that this movie finally jettisons Halloween 2 from 1981, jettisons that movie out of continuity. And in so doing, jettisons the uh, concept of Laurie Strode and Michael Myers being siblings. And I have hated despised that plot point since I first discovered it. I never approved of that. I never liked that. I never enjoyed that. Now, oddly enough, that's kind of like the linchpin for Halloween H2O, which did in effect kind of what Halloween 2018 did. But that that's still kind of the spine of the movie, the fact that they're siblings. And so I can accept the fact that it, you know, that's how it is. You know, that that fact is in continuity so that I can kind of have a sort of entree into Halloween H2O but the fact that it's it's finally been removed, it's finally been washed away, hopefully never to return, uh, starting right here in Halloween 2018 that's very much in line with my personal sensibilities. Now did you find yourself agreeing with that decision or disagreeing or for that matter even caring? Well, it it's an interesting point because it kind of goes to uh, to this movie and beyond a little bit in my mind because it gives you a plausible exp- explanation for why Michael is fixated on Laurie. On the other hand, and I don't want to go too far into it because we're going to focus on that later, in the next movie, Michael doesn't seem so fixated on Laurie anymore. So, right. you know, that kind of plays okay with me. Um in this movie, it, it does kind of turn it around a little bit. It makes it more like Laurie is fixated on Michael. Yes. So I like that. Um, and I, I'm, I'm going to go into it just a, a little bit because I think they skirted the danger of Laurie becoming Sarah Connor. And they they I think they kind of abutted it but they didn't go there and I think the difference is uh, Laurie's daughter is not John Connor and doesn't accept the teachings the way John Connor did so I think that that's that's where they allow it to diverge and, and not make it just a carbon copy of the same theory uh, but she is still you know 
dealing with everything. And I like that fact that, you know, she has to whatever level and, and whatever ability she has to cope with it clearly has PTSD that is never going to go away. Right. Yeah. And, and she's dealing with that. And it's, you know, they come right out and say that she's, you know, had two failed marriages because of it. Her daughter was taken away and, and you know, put into a foster home. Uh, you know, so, so the, there's there's ramifications to everything that went on and they're significant. And I kind of like that. It's not just, you know, oh, well, let's let's move on. And, and you know, she's so strong that she can just deal with this. You know, part of part of. The deal is she is, yes, she is strong, but it's tortured her ent- her entire life. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's it's just an interesting way of looking at it. So uh, I, I know I'm just kind of wandering around here talking, <laughs> talking a little bit in circles, but I was accepting the idea that she's his, his sister. I'm also accepting that she's not. It never really bothered me as a plot point, uh, but I'm kind of cool with it not existing as well. Okay, well, fair enough. It's just, it always seemed a little too, no, I am your father kind of thing to me, you know? And it's just, you know, I buy it in Empire. I don't really buy it in Halloween. It's just, that town is too small for neither of them to know what's up. And clearly Michael Myers did, and Laurie didn't. And it's just, that just never made sense. Yeah, no, I, I, I can't argue with you there. That, and, I, you know, oddly enough, I'll even give Rob Zombie some amount of praise for dealing with a stupid plot point in a way that actually, you know what, in, in his movies, for better or for worse, as good or bad as they might be, I can actually buy it in those movies. That's not to say I approve, but I I can see it a little bit more, you know. And um, But anyway, yeah, not to get too far off topic here. Uh now, there is a, um, you know, th- there was a lot of uh, excitement and to do about the fact that John Carpenter is finally kind of sort of coming back to the uh, the Halloween universe, you know, and obviously he's not directing it. Now, and if I may say so, I think the movie's actually maybe better for that. But at least in terms of, you know, David Gordon Green's like overall direction of uh, uh, of the film did you see this as a positive thing the fact that this is going to be a Blumhouse joint not going to be directed by Carpenter but he's still going to be kind of involved at, like what was his involvement anyway like as a I, I think it was more or consultant? less consultant yeah that's the, that's the impression I got he's not even listed as you know getting any kind of writing credit on it so I, I assume he was just consulted and, and kind of gave his uh, thumbs up to where they were going uh, but you know as a director, I've liked a lot of things that John Carpenter has done very, very much. So I'm not going to go as far as to say it's a positive that he didn't direct it, because uh, it may have been a, a terrific movie if he had. But I do like the direction in this movie. I like the, the, a lot of the camera angles they used. I liked a lot of the pacing and the way it was put together. I liked just... I, I'm giving some credit also to the cinematography, which is Michael Simmons. Uh, I, I thought some of the, the lighting and the shots and the, the vistas and everything that they showed were really well put together. Uh, a combination of like when they showed him in the uh, in, in the institute at the beginning of the movie, and then you know to get that small town feeling throughout it. I thought it was all just really well put together as far as that goes. And that was another thing that 
I would say I came to appreciate more on the second viewing. First time around, I have a tendency to just kind of try and, you know, immerse myself in the movie world and not really look at the finer points of it. Second time around, when I know where the movie is going to go, I am going to pay a little bit more attention to the music and the uh, camera angles and, and the different, you know, cuts that they make and things like that. So, you know, maybe that's one of the reasons why I appreciated it more the second time around. Well, or, you know, fair enough. I mean, come to that, you know, uh, the movie actually starts with that big sequence at the uh, at the uh, mental institute, and I forget. I, offhand, I can't remember if that's actually supposed to be Smith's Grove or if it's supposed to be something else. But either way, right? The uh, the asylum. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> from the time that basically the the podcasters enter the uh, the asylum until that moment right when uh, the opening credits roll all of that is just it's so menacing you know like there's this air of this kind of invisible threat that you never really see but it's like it's somehow it's always there it's always around you and then whenever you get out into the courtyard they have Michael Myers conveniently facing away from the camera you know as it should be and it's pretty clear that Myers is pretty much the the alpha male of all of the murderers and just psychos and weirdos that they have running around in that place. As dangerous as some of those other patients may be, none of them hold a candle to the guy. And I kind of like the fact that it that it, that it it played out that way. And he is clearly, you know, uh, you know the uh, the kind of the bully in the playground that even the other nut jobs are afraid of. They're and, afraid of, of the podcast is even approaching him. It yeah, freaks them yeah. out. <laughs> but then of course, when they, uh, when, uh, Aaron takes out, uh, uh, the mask and it's like the entire, it's like that entire courtyard just kind of tilts because now Michael Myers knows how close he is. And, I don't know. It's that's one of the one of my favorite parts of the whole movie because it's you're you you need to be a director of a certain amount of skill and talent to create that kind of ominous dread with people who are just standing around and they're not even really moving all that much and yet somehow the tension it just gets thicker and thicker and thicker. I, I and totally uh, that's one agree. of the best parts of the whole movie. If you ask I me. totally agree, and I, I thought that scene is absolutely riveting. Uh, I like the setup too. Now, there's I, I don't know if this is a subtext that they're shooting for, or if it's what I see. And sometimes I have a problem with the con, the concept that if you see it, it's there, as opposed to the director meant for you to see it. Uh, I, you know, sometimes I think it's just coincidence that something's there, and that's not what the director intended. But I don't know. In this instance, when they're all standing there and it's a long shot, uh, you know, there's the check checkerboard squares. So I feel like they're all on a chessboard, being moved around, and I feel there's a subtext there that you know, like all the things in this movie that you think are random events are not and they're being manipulated and this this chess moves going on and 
it's what lets me get by what I think is one of the biggest weaknesses that I first perceived when I saw the movie that they just happened to be going out and transporting the prisoners at night, the night before Halloween, once again, and there's another bus accident. Like, that just seemed like, you know, really? That's what happened? Except, you know, when I look back on it and I start thinking, well, things are being manipulated, and we do find out later on that Dr. Sartain, who's the uh, caretaker for him, uh, is manipulating things to some extent. And so now I feel he somehow manipulated things for that bus accident to happen. And I thought he even went, he even took the extra step of timing it so close to, to Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. I think he, 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 you know, he was moving things around on the chessboard thinking that he was going to get to, to where he was going until he found out that, you know, uh, he was a pawn also. <laughs> yeah, no, he is. Um, either way he was sacrificed. That's for sure. Um, now, one of the other really uh, cool parts of the movie that that I really got into, there's this uh, moment where Michael Myers is back. He's got his mask, he's wandering around uh, suburbia, and unlike previous movies, we actually see, instead of seeing him torment just a small group of people, focusing all of his attention on them, it's more like he's on a shopping spree. A little bit where uh, he starts off on uh, on the street, bumps into some kids, goes into some woman's house, whacks her out, comes out of her house uh, or, or rather while he's in the house, he picks up a chef's knife, come, uh, comes out of her house, finds his next victim, whacks her out. And you get the idea. He's just working that entire street in an, is its own way, kind of like trick or treating, you know. And uh, but there is I, I don't know if you if you. Uh, ever saw this interview but um, the stunt woman who played the neighbor who gets a knife right to the neck if you know what I'm talking about Mm -hmm. she gave an interview to some horror movie aficionado YouTuber guy and she I mean number one she's a fan of these movies and that's why she kind of lobbied to be in this one you know I mean apart from the fact that you know it's a job she really wanted to be in this, you know, e- even if it was just to be a victim because she likes these movies. But she laid out a lot of like really technical information about how that entire sequence, which is shot with one camera sort of camera uh, take the entire time. There's not a cut anywhere in that sequence, you know, start to finish. She gave a lot of information about that, but she also kind of laid out her interpretation of. Michael Myers, and especially in this movie, like what's driving him. And she actually laid something out there that, as it turns out, you know, I mean, I've been kind of thinking, thinking about myself where in in his own kind of way, Michael Myers is sort of a reactive character in this movie in that he sees people and he kind of mentally classifies everybody he sees into one of two categories. One, the first one being a victim. The second one being threat. And so if he sees somebody, just mentally filters them, oh, this person is a victim, my next victim. I'm going to go after them. Or he sees someone else, oh, this person is a threat. I'm going to get them first. And then I'm going to go back to my victims. And so as it relates to, you know, Lori's participation in this movie, you know, you said, and I tend to agree, and the stunt woman 
tends to agree that up to a certain point, I mean, Michael Myers is not really gunning for her in this movie. I mean, she kind of imposes herself into the proceedings, but only after a certain point does Michael Myers prioritize taking Laurie out. But up to then, he probably would have been content to to not see her, not revisit her, not not do anything. And to tie this back with your point about um, the chessboard, Dr. Sartain is trying to put the two of them back together so that they can each, you know, whatever it is that they need to get out of this, they'll get out of it. And let's face it, Michael Myers is probably going to win, at least in Sartain's mind. And so that's kind of his agenda. And it's just, again, I mean, you know, I, I heard so much criticism about this movie, and it's like every time I turn around, I'm constantly seeing some very carefully thought-out character motivations. There's a lot of internal logic to the plot. So much of this adds up for me, you know? Yeah, I, I just wanted to throw that. all that out there. I agree with pretty much everything you said. Um, one of the things that I walked away after the repeated viewing was there seems to be a grand scheme of some sort in Michael's mind, but we never really know what that plan is. He's not just indiscriminately lashing out at everybody that's near him. You know, there's the scene where he's in the street and the kid bumps into him and he just walks away. He doesn't kill the kid or anything. When, when he, when he kills the woman in the house, you hear a baby crying. He doesn't go kill the baby. You know, there's plenty of times where he could just indiscriminately kill people and doesn't. So, in his twisted mind, there is some sort of logic to his killing spree. We never really know what it is, and I don't think we ever should know what it is, because it's going to be something that's so insane that we probably wouldn't be able to kind of follow the, the train of thought. But they leave out there that maybe he wants to kill Laurie. But that's not his focus, or at least they don't give you the any you know any point where they let you think it is his focus. It just eventually works out to the uh, the conflict between them. Um, I kind of love the idea of having a, a kitchen island with a remote control and it moves and it gives you you know the Batcave stairs. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I would. I, I don't know how you get people to build that for you, but you know it's still very very cool. Um, but but they well, also. I mean, if you want to go into that. Uh, actually, I did research a little bit of that oh, after please. watching this movie for the first time, because uh, I was kind of curious about that. I mean, it's like you say, I mean, that's just such a such an original idea, you know, like the idea of, build, uh, of uh, building a compound. OK, well, I mean, you've seen tons of compounds and tons of movies, but that specifically the kitchen island thing that leads down into her little armory. And no, I mean, there are there are companies out there that specialize in that kind of sort of strange construction project they will do it <laughs> you, you know i i feel like the way this you know i i don't think i'm you know giving any tremendous insight here but they they show you her as the victim who is prepared to defend herself if necessary and then they twist it at the end of the movie that no she isn't the victim she's the aggressor and and I really liked that twist. I thought that was I didn't see that coming, and I thought that gave it a new dimension. Um, you know, you you don't want them to just make the same movie again. Uh, no. You know, when, when you talked about Halloween two earlier, uh, 
Halloween 2 is really them attempting to give you the same movie again. They try to throw a couple of little things in it, like the sister thing. But it really is them doing their best to recreate what John Carpenter did in the first movie. So by doing what they did in this one, by twist, giving you some twists and giving you some character moments that you might not otherwise anticipate... Uh, you know, making Dr. Sartain not Dr. Loomis, making him different when, you, when, when you've already kind of gotten the feel at that point that he is just a clone of Dr. Loomis. And then taking Laurie and taking her from victim to aggressor, uh, I just think, you know, those, those are brilliant in my mind. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. And honestly, I mean, I think the fact that I mean, it's it's sort of well known in the lore of this franchise that John Carpenter never really wanted to do the second one. I mean, he thought, okay, well, I mean, I made that movie once already. There's really not a need to revisit that or to make a sequel about it. Um, and obviously, the financiers and the public had a different opinion. But every you know, every time he ever had a chance to come back and revisit that. He always found a way to either not do it or to do it in a very different way that, frankly, probably nobody would have really wanted to see. And I've always thought that, you know, that was, number one, that's just kind of an interesting way for him to, to go about doing it. But the other thing is, it kind of says something that his mind seems to be on doing new things and not necessarily revisiting the past all the time. And I, I respect him for that. Yeah, I, I definitely but, do as well. Um, the level of involvement that he had with this movie, again, I mean, it's just it, it's one of those things that I've never been able to get a clear answer about. And nevertheless, the fact that he was willing to do it, I thought was, I mean, because there was a point when he got tapped on the shoulder to direct Halloween H2O. And for a while there, it was actually looking like it was going to happen. And then it obviously did not happen. But at least as it as it came back for this movie probably the biggest point of his influence that we know about for sure is the music and what works for me about the score for this film is it does revisit you know certain bits of business from the original halloween score but there's so much uh, carpenter has grown as a as a musician and as a composer in the intervening years, not to mention the fact he had help this time around. How do you stack up the original Halloween score, which, by the way, I'm in love with, but how does Halloween 2018 stack up against the original Halloween score in your mind? You know, I would love to just sit here right now and play the two scores back-to-back and, and be able to give you a real, you know, thoughtful answer on that um it did feel to me like this score was a little more sophisticated than yes. what we got in the first one in the first one in the first one my feeling was the brilliance was the simplicity to it uh, in this one it, it is a little bit more moody if you want to if, if that sounds right it's not just the same thing over and over and over again uh right. And I thought that was effective. I, it, it gave it a more modern feeling to me. Uh, so it, it, because of that, you know, somewhat more modern feeling. And I don't know if that's just my own, you know, my me putting my thoughts onto it as opposed to it really doing it. But 
that kind of gave me the feeling of the passage of time um, along with things that we saw. And the biggest thing to me as far as the passage of time was they let Jamie Lee Curtis look older than she really does. Yeah. And, and I think that was good for two reasons. First of all, because, you know, she's supposed to be a grandmother now with a teenage granddaughter. And second of all, because this has weighed on her heavily for 40 years. So, you know, that those factors are, are all key. Um, but she's never portrayed as this weak, fumbling person. So, but, but she's also not Linda Hamilton with the, uh, you know, ready to take on the Terminator either. <laughs> yeah, no, very true. And honestly, I mean, the comparisons between this movie and Halloween H2O, I mean, they just, maybe it's, maybe it's inevitable, you know, I don't know. But in Halloween H2O, I mean, you, you have somebody who I think is just as traumatized, but she's able to maybe hold things together a little bit more. Nevertheless, her preference and Lori's preference in Halloween H2O seemed to be more t geared toward escape and avoiding things and avoiding him, you know, to the point of even changing her own name and moving clear across country. That's how badly she wanted to escape from Michael Myers. She got to the point where if she goes any further west, she's out in the ocean, right? She's <laughs> as far away as she can physically get. Whereas in this movie, um, she stayed put. She stayed where she is. She worked hard. She built a, a compound, which we ultimately find out in the movie is a trap. Um, she trained with guns. And not, as you say, not in like a Sarah Connor sort of a way, but just in case fate ever gives her a chance, she's going to take it. You know, And it's a very different characterization of Laurie this time around. And as a fan of these movies, I'm hard-pressed to say that I like one of those more than I like the other one. They both work for me, you know, basically about the same, I would say. And that's but, and that's where where the reboot and the ignoring the sequels does work because it gives you the ability to have two very different timelines and very different directions that her character grows. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And but one one of the questions I had is, um, you know, uh, Judy Greer. Uh, uh, playing uh, Karen, Karen Nelson, and then Andy Matichek playing Allison Nelson, her daughter. You know, we've got three different uh, generations representing it uh, at, at this point. How do you like uh, those new characters? Uh, you know, Karen and Allison. You see, I, you I, know, they're. I, I saw Judy Greer as the anti-John Connor, and again, I keep making the comparisons to the Terminator franchise because I just think they. They just come to me automatically. Uh, and, I, and I think there's the the risk in making this that you could make it the same thing. Uh, and, and I'm glad they didn't because, he, you know, Judy Greer is not the child who then embraced what her mother showed her and, and became a warrior and is ready to, you know, to, to take on the responsibility of, of Michael Myers. You know, she, she is, if anything, living in denial about the whole thing and just thinks her mother is crazy. You know, and I'm going to keep doing the comparison. In Terminator 2, at one point, you know, like John uh, says something dismissive of his, his mother that she was crazy or whatever to one of his friends, but he never believed that. He just did that to, like, to, to get by, you know, what, what was being said to him and not have to deal with it. Uh, but he clearly bought into, you know, her overall 
theory for the most part. Anyway, uh, you know, to go back to this, Judy Greer clearly is wants to just sweep the past under the rug and live her life as a normal person who, you know, nothing, none of this ever happened to. Uh, and she's trying to, you know, cut ties with her mother, which, you know, clearly is a mistake as this works out. Uh, whereas, you know, Andy Matichik as Allison, she's kind of trying to, I guess, live in both worlds. She doesn't want to cut off her grandmother, but she also is trying to connect with her mother in some respects. But she's also got that teenage, uh, you know, rebelliousness in her. You know, while, while she is portrayed as an overall good person, she's still, you know, going to still do what, what she thinks she should. So I, I kind of like the different levels that we're getting there. Um, as far as performances go... I thought Andy Matichik did a good job. I thought I liked, I kind of liked her character and, and the way she portrayed her. Judy Greer felt a little bit like a, you know, like anybody could have played it that way. Yeah. She it, the performance didn't feel special. It didn't feel like she made it her own. If if in, uh, you know, Halloween Kills they replaced her with some other actress, uh, you know, I wouldn't even notice. Judy Greer. Yeah. Okay. Um. Okay. Yeah. No. I mean, I. I, I think I broadly agree with that. I mean, honestly, you know, the this movie doesn't really ask very much of Judy Greer, and you know, all due respect to her, she doesn't really deliver very much. Um, this is just—I mean, when you come right down to it, there's just not a whole lot for that character of Karen to do until you get a little bit closer to the end. And there's this moment where she kind of suckers Michael Myers and for the first time like I kind of got a uh, a sense of her own intelligence that you know she's capable of fighting back too you know she's capable of you know using her brain her mind her intelligence to to survive let's face it what would have to be just a completely terrifying situation and Unlike her mom, Lori, she has not necessarily had a, an entire lifetime to plan for this moment. So the fact that she was able to to sucker Michael Myers the way that she did, I just, that was a moment, kind of like the stand up and cheer moment where it's like, you know, everything else that she did not do or did not say or whatever else in the whole rest of the movie up to that point, all of that got redeemed. Whenever she's pointing that rifle straight up the staircase at, at Michael Myers and says, gotcha, bam. You know? yeah, that, yeah, that was a good moment. I got to give you that. That is true. Uh, I, I, you know, just kind of going through it a little bit, I really liked, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, Haluk Bilginer, Bilginer, however it's pronounced, as uh, Dr. Sartain. Uh, and, and what I liked about him was, that he let you easily feel that he was the Dr. Loomis clone early on. He, he made you he made you feel that and then did a 180 on you. And I think if he hadn't portrayed the clone aspect of it as well as he did, it would have been too easily too easy to see the twist coming. So you know I, I, I yeah. enjoyed his performance in this. 
Yeah, and I did, I did as well. And honestly, I mean that, that again, I mean that was going to be kind of a groaner for me the first time that I watched the movie, where I thought, okay, so I mean, un, you know, unfortunately, sadly, you know, Donald Pleasance, uh, Pleasance uh, passed away back in 1995 or 96, I want to say. So obviously he couldn't take part in this movie, so you created a new character to do exactly the same thing. And again, you know, they kind of threw a curveball on that, as you say, when you find out, no, he's been kind of manipulating things for his own purposes. And it's like there comes a point in the movie where you where you kind of have to start wondering who's the real lunatic in this movie? You know, is it Michael Myers or is it Dr. Sartain? And, no, and Dr. I mean, Sartain what, thinks he's above it all right up until Michael kills him, which, yeah. which I think, you know, and, and it's a pretty brutal killing. Yeah. That, <laughs> what a way to go. And, and also, I mean, that kind of says something about, you know, Michael Myers that, you know, he doesn't really have loyalties and uh, I don't know. I mean, honestly, this is the part of the movie that really could have jumped the shark, you know, everything to do with Dr. Sartain. That really could have been the straw that broke the camel's back, whereas the way that things ultimately turned out, he's actually one of the best parts of the movie. But one of the things I noticed is that for a lot of fans, I mean, for them, there were there was a point when Sartain puts on the mask. And for a lot of fans, I mean, that was just way over the line. Like, you do not, you don't do that. You know, you don't put on his mask. But he did, and perhaps in so doing, sealed his own fate. But the, the fact that he did it, what are your thoughts on that? You know, um, was that out of line, even if there were consequences for having done it? What Was uh, Green out of line for letting Sartain put on the mask was that a bad idea like what what are your thoughts no I don't, I don't think that's a bad idea at all I think it's you know it, it this the, the whole way this plays out shows that he he thinks he's the chess master manipulating everything and he's being manipulated and you know like you say that that's a point where this movie easily could have jumped the shark and I think the performance is what carries it and keeps it from jumping the shark uh, but him, him putting on the mask just to me is is a sign of his, uh, it, it just his ego taking over, and thinking that he's able to do anything he wants. So I, I you know, I, I, I don't see it. I don't have any problem with it. I, I that's not a secret cow for me. Well, I mean, I could, I could see it either way. But I mean, if you ask me, there needs to be a consequence. You know, that's, that's really my issue. If you're going to take his mask away from him, you need to pay for that. Or in the case of Halloween Resurrection, if you're going to ninja kick Michael Myers out a window, I don't necessarily like that. But he needs to catch up with you later on and get even with you. You know, you you, you shouldn't be able to just. I don't know what else to, to I don't know how else to put it, but you shouldn't be able to emasculate him like that and not pay a price. You know, and so in this case, Sartain paid a price. He took the mask, and who's to say that isn't what cost him his life in the end? Mm-hmm. So that's just that's my way of looking at it. It's a preference, but it was like I say, it was extremely controversial for uh, a lot of people that it happened that way. So anyway, <clears throat> um, now the 
there's a lot we could talk about in terms of um, you know the next movie uh, and I'd really I really don't want to spoil ahead but you know by the time you get to the point where we roll credits on this and it's clear or it's at least implied Michael Myers could conceivably survive the way this movie ends with you know the house being lit on fire turns out you know the Strode compound it was a it was actually a very elaborate trap that Lori built years ago to capture and kill Michael but it's looking like he at least could have survived does that bother you the fact that there's arguably no closure to this to this movie or are you just content to take things as they come I am content to take things as they come as they come but I'm also you know I'm kind of of a mind that uh, that Michael is is more than just a person and I know people don't like that uh, because there's no basis in fact for it but I just kind of accept with you know to me to me Michael is the uh, modern embodiment of the universal monsters of the 1930s and 40s so yes. so I don't ever see any of them dying even if the movies end with you know the, the werewolf getting shot with a silver bullet or whatever um so I'm kind of always accepting him coming back, no matter what goes on. But you know, it's it's nice to not take it over the top too far. But I'm still kind of okay with it. I, I to me, to me, he he's more of a some sort of a you know a demonic entity than a person almost. But that said. I kind of liked at the beginning of the movie when he's in the asylum and they show him without the mask and he's standing there and you, you know, you, you kind of get a feel for how menacing he is even without the mask and without the, the, you know, the jumpsuit and the knife in his hand and he's chained and he, he you know, you kind of feel in that scene that if he decided he wanted to, he could still get out of that position and kill those people. You think so? It's there's no again no basis in fact for it, but that's the feel I have. Somehow he would, you know, lure one of them close enough that he'd grab a hold of them or something, and then they'd be dead, and then uh, they'd have the key to his chains on him. Something would happen. Like if he needed to get out of that, he would somehow. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's I think that's why the scene is so, you know, so uh, edge of your seat, because there's, <laughs> there's always the feeling that Michael could kill you. Yeah, absolutely. And the <clears throat> that tension it, it, it exists. It, it's stretched all the way through um, the film. One of the best parts is, um, oddly enough, it's actually a deleted scene where I think, God, it's been forever since I've seen it. Forgive me. I, I didn't know I was going to talk about this uh, or else I would have rewatched the scene. But there's there is a deleted scene. And I think it, it's definitely on YouTube, but I think it's probably on the Blu-ray as well, where you've got Allison. She's just, you know, wandering around the neighborhood. And this takes place before the costume party, but it, but after Michael has escaped, right? And so he hasn't started his uh, killing spree yet. But uh, Allison comes across, I want to say it's a dead cat. And... To my memory, there there is no films. This scene was never scored. There's no music for it. But just watching it, just this creepy, menacing atmosphere that now for the first time, Allison is getting 
kind of a, a, a preview of it, just a little glimpse. It's actually one of the best parts of the movie, and I'm sure directors hear it all the time. Why did you cut that scene? This is great, you know, and there's always a reason, you know, to to cut a scene. But it's like this one in particular, I mean, oh, this one hurt because it basically boiled everything that's going on in this movie down into one single scene where you've got this very ordinary, very normal-looking suburban neighborhood. People are running around doing ordinary, normal things, and then death has come to Haddonfield. And it's just the perfect summary of this film. And so, you know, I, you know, whatever. It's not in the movie, but it, it, it. I don't know if you've even seen this scene. But I haven't. It. Oh, it's worth checking out. I mean, I think it's only like thirty seconds or a minute long or something like that. But oh. It's so good. I'm guessing it's available on YouTube, so I'm gonna have to look. Oh I, no, I'm, I promise you, it's on YouTube. Yeah, because that's where I saw it that first time. And so, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to detract from your point there. No, but, not uh, at all. There it is. Not at all. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. You know, I'm, I'm even looking at the, uh, you know, the Wikipedia page, and it's just in a post-credit scene, Michael's breathing is heard. It's really not even much. Not really even a scene. Uh, it's just you just you yeah. hear breathing, you know. But uh, you know, I mean, from what I heard, they planned this as a trilogy from the beginning, but they also gave you, you know, some small extent of closure at the end, even though you know there is the implication that Michael survived. But there was always, every movie ends with the implication that Michael survives, uh, so I don't really have a problem with that at all. Um, I don't think any of the other actors are necessarily worth bringing up uh you know that the, the teenagers kind of fit, fill their their roles as expected nothing uh significant uh, the, the i guess the only other scene that i had in my notes uh was you know the the, the scene in the school when the, the lesson is going on and uh allison looks out the window and jamie lee curtis is there and it it's just you know it's clearly a a re uh creation of of the scene of of, of uh, Laurie in school in the first movie when she looks out and sees Michael and then he's gone. So yeah. I kind of like that. It's, it's, it's an Easter egg, but it's an Easter egg in the way I like them to be that if you don't get the Easter egg, it doesn't take away from, you know, it's not showing you something that you're saying, Oh, why did they show that? Uh, it's, it's just, you know, it's giving you just enough, which I thought was really cool. I agree. And how did you like uh, James Jude Courtney playing Michael Myers? I liked, like I said, in the beginning when they show him in, in the, the courtyard, I liked the, uh, I, I liked the look, and I, like I said, I thought he felt threatening enough. Um, I, you know, I, I does he actually does he do that scene, or did they have somebody else for that first scene? Uh, to my understanding, uh, it's almost always. James Jude Courtney, unless I think there's a scene like when Laurie tries to shoot at at, at Michael Myers, and then they see each other through a, a mirror. Oh, actually, I'm just I'm looking at the credits now. They have uh, James Jude Courtney as Michael Myers, and then it says Nick Castle as Michael Myers. Window scene and breathing sounds, and when Nick, oh. Nick Castle is the one who did it in the original movie. Uh, so I guess James Jude Courtney is 
who we see at the beginning of the movie, and I thought I thought he had a real good look for it, honestly. Like I said, because he, he, you know, he clearly is older, having had those years go by, but he doesn't look any less strong or menacing. So I, I was I was definitely on on board for for the way he appeared there, and frankly, once the mask is on. Uh, then, then there's there's not a lot of emoting you could do with the mask, and yeah. there's not a lot of emoting that this character needs to do. The whole point of the acting and the physical acting is to always look threatening and always look like you're never going back on your heels ever. Uh, and I think you know that was all well done. Yeah, uh, I couldn't agree more. But when we talk about uh, Halloween Kills, whenever we finally get a chance to uh, record that I'm, I'm I think I want to revisit this aspect of the conversation because I, I there are some there are some comments I want to throw out there that are not really appropriate to make right now but uh, I think you might get a kick out of um, when we talk about Halloween kills but uh, you know in the main um, you know if we're ready to you know some kind of sum everything up here I got to tell you I just I enjoy this movie I, I believe it's a uh, it's a worthy sequel. Now, to be fair, <clears throat> I'm the guy in the room who the only the only Halloween movie that exists, in, in my opinion, that just completely sucks is Halloween five. OK, I just I cannot find anything redeeming about Halloween five. All the rest of the Halloween movies, I'm a fan of e- even kind of Halloween, too. I'm, I'm a fan of, you know, to varying degrees. But really, man, I got to tell you, you know, Halloween 2018, it just it stands out as being a worthy follow up to the original. This it it honors the original. It honors the characters. It's scary in its own right. This is just uh, this was just a fun little ride. And I'm so happy that this movie exists and, you know, we can watch it and talk about it and all that. That's uh, I mean, for me, it's great fun. So um, that's uh, at least for me, I think that pretty much sums it all up so yeah, i think you know the discussion of how michael is portrayed in halloween kills uh does have to go on the back burner because to be totally honest i haven't seen halloween kills since last year and <laughs> i will before we do that recording i'll watch it again with a critical eye and i'll try and really get a feel for what i think of the performance uh so you know that will be on hold until we do that and i'm hoping to do that within the next couple of weeks so that we can again release these in tandem uh but all that said it's i'm gonna having heard you give your general take on it i'm gonna give you my rating first and then i'll ask you to give yours uh i do think this is a worthy sequel and i've seen i've seen you know i saw no question halloween and halloween 2 halloween 3 uh from beginning to end uh the other movies more often than not i caught a little here a little there uh, and never sat down didn't see any of them in the theater uh and and i can't really even distinguish between a lot of them and maybe at some point we'll we'll explore some of those for future october episodes uh sure but right now you know we're going to just focus on this as the sequel to the first movie and i did rank the first movie as a jaws because i feel like it was a masterpiece uh i think this is a worthy sequel and i think this is very enjoyable and i really enjoyed watching it i wouldn't go quite as far as calling it a masterpiece so i'm going to give it a solid jaws 2 uh and that's with the 
asterisk that the first time I watched it, I would have given it a Jaws 3. Oh. <laughs> but now I think it's a solid Jaws 2. Um, yeah, you know what? I, I think I broadly agree with that. I mean, this is just barely Jaws 2. I mean, if they... if if just a few other things, you know, had, you know, amazing ideas had been put into this movie, I might have actually had no choice but to say this is Jaws, no question about it. But, yeah, you know, I mean, I, it's it's it put it down to like a near miss. This is barely Jaws 2. It's almost Jaws. And um, this is uh, – I'm not prepared to say that, incidentally, about just every single movie that's, you know, part of this series – um, but you know, certainly for this one, for 2018, without hesitation, this is this is Jaws 2. And and again, I want to preface that it's almost Jaws. I mean, that's you know, it's a very near miss. So um, I, I love this movie. I have a you know great time for it. I have a very high opinion of it. And I don't I don't know about anyone else. I can't wait to see what's coming with uh, Halloween ends. So there you go. Right, but in the meanwhile, we'll get back together and we'll give you our take on. Halloween kills between now and Halloween ends. Uh, so I hope you all stick with us for this. Uh, Trent, thanks for coming on. Always a pleasure, my friend, to talk to you and uh, get your perspective on these movies. And I look forward to talking to you real soon about the next one. I can't wait. Just let me know when and I'll be there. All right. Thank you again, everybody, for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Take care. Our patients get fresh air, sunshine, a view, proper exercise healthy diet it pains me to see him transfer to that less than desirable facility and there he is he can't speak he just chooses not to i'd love to stand closer to him if i may get a sense of his awareness or lack of awareness oh make no mistake he's aware he was watching you as you arrived perhaps you'd like to tie your left shoelace Mr. Tavoli here, the gentleman with the umbrella, has a fixation for such things. Underestimate no one. Yes. Okay, now step up to the yellow line. And no further. Do not cross the line under any circumstances. Michael? Michael? I've got some people who'd like to meet you. Hello, Michael. My name is Aaron Corey. I've been following your case for years and still know very little about you. I'd like to know more. About that night. About those involved. Do you ever think about them, Michael? Feel guilt about their fate? I borrowed something from a friend at the Attorney General's office, Michael. You 
feel it, don't you, Michael? You feel the mask. Say something, Michael. Say something. You feel it, can't you? It's a part of you, Michael. It's a part of you. Say something. Say something, Michael. 